So today, we are continuing our walk through the Gospel of John. Um, It's always a pleasure to be able to speak with you this morning. We are going to pick up where Pastor Matt has left off. You see, the past two weeks, we have been in Bethany, in John chapter 11. And we have witnessed firsthand the miracle of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Jesus turns a painful moment into a life-giving and life-shattering moment. He turns something that's repugnant into something that's reviving. He turns something bad into something good. If you were here the last time I was blessed to give the Sunday morning message, you may remember that I talked a little bit about that idea of God turning or using bad to create good. God, as we know, is holy and perfect and cannot be in the presence of evil. But he can use bad moments in our lives for his glory. He can use circumstances in our lives that are unfortunate to give him glory and honor. And that's what he was doing here. And we'll touch on that in just a second. Now before we finish off John chapter 11, let's take about a minute or two and reflect back on what we have already seen and heard and witnessed in John chapter 11. First off in verses 1 through 7... We recognize that God's timing is always right. Remember that Lazarus had already been sick. And Jesus and his disciples delayed in coming to him for a couple of days. They wondered why they were about to see why. So God's timing is always right. In verses 8 through 16 we realize and we begin to understand that this act of what Jesus is about to do is going to shape people's faith for the rest of their lives. So people's rocky faith is turned into faith that is in good and solid soil. People's faith grows. In verses 17 through 27, Jesus promises life after death for those who believe in him. So the core idea, the core principle of why he came down from heaven, he says. He said that he is the resurrection and the life. And that anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. In verses 28 through 37, we see the humanity side in Jesus. When he bursts out weeping at the effects of sin in the people in Bethany. They are upset that Lazarus died. He is upset that they are upset that Lazarus has died. And so that very famous shortest passage in scripture, then Jesus wept, is presented. He is shaken at the fact that people are taking this so hard. And then finally, verses 38 through 44, we see the miracle take place. And that Lazarus is indeed risen from the dead. 
I can recall the moment where I heard and, and read and was presented the command that Jesus gave. Lazarus, come out! It was actually in VBS. And my pastor acted as Jesus. And my associate pastor acted as Lazarus. And the class kind of giggled out loud when we saw this mummy-like dude coming out from the closet wrapped around in cloths. But the point was still the same. To see someone raise another person after they had died was incomprehensible. And that's where we pick up today. John chapter 11, verses 45 through 57. Before we do that, let's realize and remember why we read Scripture and what it's here for. In 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 through 17... It says that scripture is inspired by God to teach us, to make us realize what's wrong in our life and to guide us and to correct us along our faith journey. So scripture's purpose is to draw us closer to Christ, for Christ to be revealed to us so that we can grow in our relationship with him and with others. So with that in mind, Will you join me as we read John 11, verses 45 through 57? It's up here on the screen if you would like to read along. Many of the people who were with Mary believed in Jesus when they saw this happen, raising Lazarus from the dead. But some went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the leading priests and Pharisees called the high council together. What are we going to do? This man certainly performs many miraculous signs. If we allow him to go on like this, soon everyone will believe in him. Then the Roman army will come and destroy both our temple and our nation. Now Caiaphas, who was high priest, said, You don't know what you're talking about. You don't realize that it's better for you that one man should die for the people than for the whole nation to be destroyed. He did not say this on his own. As high priest, he was led to prophesy that Jesus would die for the entire nation. And not only for that nation, but to bring together and unite all of God's children around the world. So from that time on, the Jewish leaders began to plot Jesus' death. And as a result, Jesus stopped his public ministry among the people and left Jerusalem. He went to a place near the wilderness to the village of Ephraim and stayed there with his disciples. It was now almost time for the Passover celebration, and many people from all over the country arrived in Jerusalem several days early so they could go through the purification ceremony. They kept looking for Jesus, but as they stood around in the temple, they said to each other, What do you think? He won't come for Passover, will he? Meanwhile, the leading priests and Pharisees had publicly ordered that anyone seeing Jesus must report it immediately so they could arrest him. John 11 verses 45 through 57. In case you're wondering what this particular passage is about, what its topic is about, in most Bibles there is a bigger font, maybe with bold connotation, right before verse 45. And it plainly says, the plot to kill Jesus. That's what this is about this morning. Now I have to confess, 
When Brother Matt asked me to preach just in case there was baby news, I was a little bit hesitant because I had never spoken on this passage before. So Pastor Matt and I talked this week and we went through several things about this passage. So this is pretty much what Brother Matt was going to say with a couple of my words and personality in it. So it's kind of like a combo sermon of the two. What we talked about was, it was something that that took me a little bit abrash, and, and it took me hard to understand it. Because the plot to kill Jesus, we see that the Pharisees were very upset with Jesus and they wanted to remove him. But Brother Matt in his notes said, do we sometimes intentionally push Jesus aside and kill Jesus to better suit ourselves and our lives? You see, we have all of the best intentions of wanting Christ to play a part in our lives. But when we let distractions and our own passions take charge, our humanity humanity instinctively and unconsciously pushes Jesus out of the driver's seat in our life. We are ready and willing to have Jesus climb in behind the wheel and lead our car and we're in the passenger seat. But then if things get uncomfortable or he asks us to do things that we don't want to do, step out of our comfort zone, we're going to inch over and we're going to inch over and we're going to start elbowing him in the ribs and we're going to want to put a hand on the wheel until eventually we're right back behind the wheel and we've pushed Jesus over to the passenger seat. All because we want to run our lives and we want to be in control. Jesus addressed this fact in the Gospel of Luke, verses 9, chapter 9, verses 57 through 62. As Jesus and his followers were walking along, someone said to Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, foxes have dens to live in, birds have nests, the son of man has no place even to lay his head. Then he said to another person, come and follow me. The person to whom he was speaking agreed, but then said, Lord, first let me return home and bury my father. Jesus replied, let the spiritually dead bury their own dead. Your duty is to go and preach the kingdom of God. Yet another person agreed with Jesus. Yes, Lord, I'll follow you, but first let me go and say goodbye to my family. Jesus said, anyone who puts a hand to the plow and then looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God. I don't believe that Jesus was saying here that burying family members or saying goodbye to them was not important. He did. There's no doubt in my mind that that was important to him. But what he was saying is... Is that fact, is that task more important than following me? Than putting your relationship with me first? The final verse he said about putting a hand to the plow and then looking back kind of symbolizes that we're ready to go wherever it is we're doing, but then we take a look back and we're scared and we're hesitant and we don't know if this is really the way or really the things that we ought to be doing because we're comforted by the things that we've done or in the areas or the circles that we are already in. So what are we 
unwilling to part with this morning for Jesus? What are we placing in front of him? How are we killing Jesus by the things and the activities and the people that we do? I've shared this before, but uh, for those who are in the service this morning, I'm holding up my Bible, and you can see four or five little devotion books inside it. Um, I have failed to keep track with these daily devotions, some of them dating back to February, and it's, it says to me that I too put things before my relationship with God. Watching movies, hanging out with my dog, being with friends, listening to music. And those aren't bad things at all. It's just the priority that we place them in matters. And if they take the spot of our relationship with Jesus, they become idols. And they, in effect, are the items that we use to kill Jesus and push him away. So how do we combat this? Well, we have to understand that all of the things in our life are there because God wants the best for us. He desires the best for us. If he didn't, do you think that he would have gone to the cross for you? It's a very valid question. To suffer and die for someone who isn't willing to get 110% to the thing, to the mission, to the idea that he was trying to say. There's a very popular verse in Jeremiah chapter 29. It's verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for good and not for disaster, to give you a future and to give you a hope. Are we believing that promise this morning? By the way in which we live our life and the things that are in them. And if Jesus is the most important person in our life. The Pharisees didn't. As a matter of fact, once they realized that it was time for a move to be made, they justified killing Jesus to maintain that false sense of control. See, Caiaphas said, look, we have a status in this community. People come to us and we make them feel like that we are the most important people in their lives and they worship us. And not God. So if this man continues doing that, our reputation is threatened. Our livelihood is at stake. So it is better that one man should die for the people than for the whole nation to be destroyed. They justified that false act because they were scared that the status quo that they had built up was going to be torn down. The senior high is going through a book study this semester with a a book called My Heart, Christ's Home. It's a really good book. It's only 35 or so pages long. I would encourage you to take a look at it. And the premise of this book is that it describes our heart as a house with rooms like all houses do. Living room, kitchen room, dining room, bedroom, etc. And so the idea is that we are taking a room-by-room inspection 
and seen what would happen in those rooms if Christ came in and renovated the rooms. In effect, transforming the house. In the living room, that's the place where we meet Jesus every day and he's there waiting for us. We could have all the best intentions and come down there and say, hey, Jesus, I'm excited. Let's get going. 30 minutes of quiet time. I can't wait. But weeks come by, months come by, and we go into the living room. He's there, but then our response is, oh, Jesus, you know what? I've got other things to do. I really can't handle a quiet time with you today, so we'll push it off until tomorrow. And that happens again and again and again until eventually you don't have a quiet time with God anymore. So the living room is closed to your heart. Then you go to the dining room. God says to feed on his word. I know God, you know, the Bible's important to me and your word is, is awesome and it, it, it tastes good. But I like to listen to the music that I listen to or, or watch the, the movies or the TV shows and, and watch CNN or Fox News or NBC News. And there are other things that feed me as well. Well, the dining room is closed because God's word is the only thing that should feed you. Then you move on to the bedroom. Well, God, my relationship with you is great, but there are other people that are important too. You know, my wife, my kids, my husband. And so, you know, they're important too. So, you know, I don't think I can give you as much time as I can give them. Well, then that's close too. Do you see a pattern? Until eventually your whole house is not a place where Jesus lives. You are justifying this false hope Because you don't want to give Jesus the keys to your your heart. To truly let Christ take the reins in our life, to validate our belief that Jesus is Lord, we have to relinquish control to him. We have to. Some of you know a little bit about my story. That in middle school and high school, uh, I was obsessed with worrying about my family's financial situation, about my status in the community, about the, the, the way I was regarded in my circle of friends, about the safety of my family. I once saw Home Alone or Home Alone 2 in the movie theater. I don't remember which one it was. And while everyone else in the movie theater was laughing at the stupidity of Harry and Marv in those movies, I was crying. My mother had no idea why I was crying until she pulled me aside and took me aside and said, Neil, you should be laughing. What's going on? And my response was, they broke into that little boy's house and he's afraid. And so for the next two years, every night before I went to bed, I would tell my parents to check the locks on our doors and windows because I didn't want that to happen to us. I was worried. But then I saw a passage in Matthew 6 near the end of the Sermon on the Mount where it said, don't worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each new day has enough trouble of its own. And right there, the light bulb clicked, everything connected, and I realized that even though life may still be hard, we do not need to worry if we give God control. In Mark 8, verse 35, Jesus says, If you try to hang on to your life, you'll lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the good news, you will save it. Why are you holding on to the reins of your sled when Jesus will guide it much better?
The Pharisees didn't want to do that. So after they justified their reasoning for wanting to kill Jesus, they sought out other people that would support their horrible idea. From that time on, the Jewish leaders began to plot Jesus' death in verse 53. Do we surround ourselves with a person or a group of people that high-five us and our desire to rally around selfish motivations? Think about the people that you have in your life. Do they support you? Or do they call you out when you need to be called out? Here at WinFUMC, there is a group of people called the Youth Task Force. And they're wonderful people. We couldn't do the things in our youth ministry that we do without them. But they have been blessed with the opportunity to help me see what I am doing right. And they're also called to say, hey, Neil, we saw this. And we just wanted to get your idea about why you did this. Or they flat out say, hey, Neil, we saw you do this. We don't think it's a good idea. Here's why. That kind of criticism is vital for not only me and my professional journey, but for me and my spiritual journey as well. Because it makes me realize that I have people in my corner who aren't afraid to lovingly come up to me and say, how can we make you better? How can Christ work better in you? That's what we need in our lives. The Pharisees' decision for inclusion, wrapping themselves around their idea, leads to Jesus in a time of seclusion. Because that happens, Jesus stopped his ministry, left Jerusalem, And went to the wilderness. If we don't have people who will help take us a notch or two down when we need to, our minds blow up with ego and with pride. We are too set on our way that we, in effect, lose the way. That's Pastor Matt's saying. He's credited for that. God's presence withdraws from us, withdraws from the group that you are in. And when that happens and God's presence leaves, some things happen that are not exactly appetizing. Listen to some of these passages from Romans 1 verses 18 through 32. People knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. They began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. And as a result, their minds became dark and confused. They became utter fools. Instead of worshiping the ever-loving God, they worshiped idols made to look like people, birds, animals, and reptiles. So God abandoned them to do whatever shameful things their hearts desired. They did vile and degrading things, trading the truth about God for a lie. They worshipped and served the things that God created instead of God himself. Their lives became full of every kind of wickedness, sin, greed, hate, envy, murder, quarreling, deception, malicious behavior, gossip, 
insolence, pride, and boastfulness. They invented new ways of sinning and have no mercy. I do not want to be a part of that group of people whose characteristics I just listed. In order to not be associated with that group of people, let us welcome it when people love us to tell us that we are off track and that we need to get right with God. In Proverbs 3, verses 11 through 12, Solomon writes, My child, don't reject the Lord's discipline. Don't be upset when he corrects you. For the Lord corrects those he loves, just as a father corrects a child in whom he delights. There are plenty of ways here at WinFUMC that you can get plugged into a group that will love you, that will lift you up, and that will hold you accountable. Women's circles, women's studies, men's study, men's prayer breakfasts, Sunday morning worship, youth programs, children's programs. And we are expanding the list to hopefully have more programs for this wonderful body of Christ to join in on. My friends, Jesus has already died. There's no one who can be killed more than once. Last time we checked, he wasn't in that tomb. He is sitting at the Father's right hand, pleading with us to let him influence every aspect of of our lives. He is screaming, I love you. Let me guide you. Let me help you to be held accountable and let me lead your life so that you will see the enormous impact you can have for the Christian community. I want to close with a couple more scripture verses to kind of put this together with a nice bow. In Micah 6, 6 through 8, the prophet says, What can we bring to the Lord? Should we bring him burnt offerings? Bow before him with offerings of calves? Offer him thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Should we even sacrifice our firstborn children to pay for our sins? No, O people. The Lord has told you what is good. This is what he requires of you. To do what is right, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. In Ephesians 3, Paul writes this, starting in verse 16. I pray that from God's glorious resources, he will empower you with inner strength through his spirit. Then... Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him. Your roots will grow down deep into God's love and keep you strong. If our roots are firm and wrapped around Jesus Christ, we won't have to justify anything we do because we won't have a need to. Because our roots will be around him. And everything that the world will throw at us, will throw at you, won't matter 
because your foundation is dug deep into Jesus Christ. Finally, the last words that Jesus said to the woman who was caught in adultery and later exonerated before the leaders of the church could stone her. He said, go and sin no more. We are going to sin, just being human. But we can certainly try to follow scripture and teachings and the lessons that Jesus taught better this week than we did next week. So, there's no need to kill Jesus. He's already been killed. But praise be to God that he didn't stay dead. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.